Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. We live in a broken world, and our eyes and hearts are not only drawn to far-off places where tragedy strikes again and again, over and over, but here in Los Angeles, across California and the nation, it's all too obvious and painful to witness the scourge of anti-Semitism and other hatreds once again on the rise. As an historian, I can confidently and sadly say that it has never gone away. Pernicious and ugly, dangerous and frightening, demanding action and the faith that out of our collective and steadfast grappling can come tolerance and understanding. I represent Dornsife College here and our dean, Amber Miller, in opening this evening's event. Despite the solemnness of these times and these themes, I'm delighted to see my friend, Councilman Yaroslavsky here, a public servant whose knowledge of the ins and outs of governance and mutuality knows few, if any, bounds. I look forward to the discussion with Mr. Stevens and our own Bob Shrum very much, as we're all sure to learn a great deal and equally certain leave the evening inspired to push for meaningful change amidst environments that all too often capitulate to hate and violence. It's a stated goal of USC that we constitute an institution that embraces and exemplifies mutual respect, but even more important, sets a standard for others to follow. We instill these values and goals in our students, and they inspire us. And tonight's event and the center which sponsors it are emblematic of this. Values and goals come with commitments, and those we hold dear must always include our students and make obvious that the fight against prejudice, hatred, and intolerance is and has to be their fight too. Without our students and the better future they can make, the fight is harder if not lost. We know that a broader understanding of ourselves and our relationships inspire us every day to create better solutions to just about any problem one can imagine. At USC Dornsife, our challenge is to use what we discover by engaging with diverse peoples and ideas to create foundations for mutual understanding and build ever stronger communities. With that, And with thanks to all of you who are here and who made tonight's event possible, let's begin this discussion on combating and confronting anti-Semitism and other hatreds. Our two discussants will be in the extraordinarily capable moderating hands of our own Bob Shrum, director of the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future, which, as I noted, offers an institutional template of engagement with hard problems and issues in an atmosphere of thoughtful exchange and reasoned contemplation. Thanks again for being here. I'd like to invite Bob to come up. Good evening, and uh, whether you're with us in person or joining us remotely, let me welcome you to the first of a series of conversations about the rising power and prevalence of hate in our country and the world, especially the oldest form of hatred, anti-Semitism. I'd like to thank the Foundation to Combat Anti-Semitism for that powerful video presentation. And for those of you who are here with us tonight, you can pick up one of those blue pins at the back as you're leaving. Uh, I also want to pay special tribute 
to Aaron Neer and his wife, Sadako, whose generosity has made this series possible. They share the center's guiding mission to model and advance civil discussions where we respect each other and respect the truth. And a heartfelt thanks to those who partnered with us on this event, the Shoah Foundation, USC Hillel, the Foundation to Combat Anti-Semitism, and the USC student organizations, Trojans for Israel, the USC Political Union, and the Political Student Assembly. When we planned this series, we did not know how fraught the moment would be after the terrorist attack on Israel and the war that's now underway. I asked everyone here to be civil, and I assure you that you will have the chance to be heard when we open up to questions for our final 20 or 25 minutes. Finally, I want to note that in this moment, hate seems to breed more hate. And I salute the Anti-Defamation League's recent statement about that. We are disgusted and horrified that a six-year-old boy was murdered and his mother severely injured in Plainfield, Illinois, allegedly because they are Muslim. We express our condolences and categorically reject all anti-Muslim hate. Now let me turn to our terrific panel. First, I want to welcome back to campus Brett Stevens, columnist for the New York Times, a Pulitzer Prize winner for, for commentary, previously the deputy editorial page editor of the Wall Street Journal, and before that, editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post. In 2014, he wrote a provocative and brilliantly prescient book entitled America in Retreat, The New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder. I should also note that a year ago, the government of Russia banned Brett for life from visiting that country. (laughs) Brett, it's a well-deserved honor. Thank you. Uh, I'm thrilled that one of UCLA's most distinguished alumni, Zev Yaroslavsky, has traveled across town to consort with the USC Trojans for an evening. Uh, Zev is a legend in Los Angeles, uh, a member of the city council for almost two decades, and then for another two decades, a county supervisor representing over two million people, serving several times as chair of the county board of supervisors. He is now the director of the Los Angeles Initiative at the UCLA, Luskin School of Public Affairs. He's just written a fascinating book called Zev's Los Angeles about his own journey and the city and county he has done so much to shape. I should also note that early on as an activist, he was the leader in the movement to free Soviet Jewry, even taking a boat out into the harbor in L.A. to write on the side of a Soviet freighter, let my people go. And I will refer to that later. So we'll talk with each other for about 40 minutes and then turn to questions from the audience. Zev, let me begin with this. The brutal terrorist attack on Israel that slaughtered so many not only inspired an outpouring of solidarity and support for that country, but triggered demonstrations by groups like Democratic Socialists of America, in effect, or almost in effect, celebrating Hamas, along with comments from some members of Congress assailing Israel. By your standards, is that a manifestation of anti-Semitism? I guess you'd have to take it on a case-by-case basis. It depends who we're talking about. But uh, uh, I I am a believer and have been all my life that anti-Zionism is a form of anti-Semitism. I know not everybody agrees with that. But Zionism in my day as a student was, uh, to use the parlance of the 60s and 70s, was the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. And to understand that whole ideology and, and movement, uh, you go back and you, you study the history of of the Jewish people going back uh, several hundred years. So I do believe when you challenge the the underpinning of the Jewish state, uh, 
which was created as a haven, among other things, as a haven uh, for Jews who had no home at a time when uh, even bef- not just the Holocaust, but before the Holocaust, where, where Jews were, let's just say, were living in a hostile work environment, uh, uh, that, that, uh, that the underpinning of, of the ideology that, that, that gave birth to the Jewish state by definition for me, is, anti, is, is an anti-Semitic act. You, you can challenge policies. I certainly challenge policies of the Israeli government, especially this government. I have my differences. I have a sister and three nephews who uh, live in, in, uh, uh, in Israel, uh, and, and I feel I have the right to criticize their policies. But I don't criticize, I don't question the right of the country to exist. So I give you that preamble. To answer your question directly, when somebody... Uh, when you have an organization or, or a group that has trafficked repeatedly in, and, and uh, with, with sustained anti-Zionist commentary and, and ideology and charters, and then you have a situation like this where at, at the very moment of one of the worst moments in, in modern history of the Jewish people, uh, more, more Jews were, were murdered on October 7th than on any single day uh, since the Holocaust, as I, I'm sure everybody has heard that, uh, that, that, that college presidents, from college presidents to students on campus to anti-Semites on, on, uh, on, on social media can't even bring themselves to say the obvious, uh, which is, is a, you know, on its own, sui generis, on its own, it is, it is a, a, an abomination, an, in, an inhuman abomination to do what was done to those uh, 12, 13, 1400 people who were murdered on the morning of the 7th. So is it a, is it a form of anti-Semitism? Look, I'm not a democratic socialist. Um, and, uh, and I don't, I don't subscribe to their ideology and a whole lot of things. Uh, I'm not surprised. Uh, on the contrary, I expected, uh, the kind of stuff, uh, that came out of their, uh, of, the, of their printing press. Quite a number of prominent people who were members of the Democratic Socialists have quit. Uh, and some who haven't quit uh, have condemned their statement. Uh, there are a lot of other organizations where that same thing uh, has happened. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's just, I, I'm, I'm not a scholar of this era. I'm not a scholar, period. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a retired politician. Uh, but I've had a whole, a whole life as, as one of the most prominent Jewish public officials in this town, in the history of this town. I have to say I did not experience a whole lot of anti-Semitism in my day as a public official. Uh, the first uh, experiences of, of anti-Semitism when I was six years old, growing up in Boyle Heights. Uh, Boyle Heights was a very diverse community. One of the ethnic groups that, was, that populated Boyle Heights was a group called the Moloch Russians. Uh, they, they came from, I forgot exactly what part of Russia it was, Brett, you may know. Uh, but there was a community of Moloch Russians. And as a first grader, there was a, a classmate of mine. Her name was Tanya. She had beautiful blue eyes and gorgeous blonde hair. And I had a crush on her at the age of six. And she invited me to come over to her house to play. She lived right across the street from the school. And her parents told, banned her, forbade her uh, to allow me to come in the house because I was a Jew. And I have to say that that is still to this day the most, the, the most direct anti-Semitic act ever, ever thrust my way. But my constituents, our community, uh, has been plagued with anti-Semitism for, uh, it, with increasing frequency. Uh, I don't have to tell this audience, uh, the Tree of Life Synagogue, the Poway Synagogue, uh, where, where people were killed, uh, people were beaten on La Cienega Boulevard in West Hollywood, uh, eating sushi, 
by uh, you know by some anti-Israel people. Was that an anti-Semitic act? You bet it was, because what came out of their mouth when they drove by with their with their lead pipes? Who's Jewish here? Uh, that was that was the uh, the the, uh, the question that was asked, and, and whoever was dumb enough to raise their hand, boom, they beat them up. Well, there were some people who were dumb enough to raise their hand, and they they fought back. So I think the the issue of anti-Semitism is uh, very complicated. It's it's a very old business, uh, as as hate directed at a lot of people are uh, are, are old time business. Uh, but this this may be the form one of the oldest, if not the oldest, form of hate, and uh, and it just doesn't seem to to be stamped out, even in places where there are no Jews anymore. Poland had what a million and a half Jews before the war, or is it three million? Three million. Three million before the war. They had thirty thousand after the war, and ten thousand by nineteen sixty seven. And if you go to Poland between 1967 and the present, they still have a radio station called Radio Maria, which traffics in blatant anti-Semitic stuff on on, on national radio in in Poland. There are no Jews left for all intents and purposes. How do you blame something somebody that doesn't exist in their own in their own country? So I I'm I'm at a loss uh, uh, for for, uh, about some of these things. It's uh, it's very difficult on campuses. I know it's you have. Uh, a great campus here. I, I, I teach at UCLA. Uh, I don't have to tell the students here that it is not a comfortable thing to be uh, identified for free to identify openly as a as a Jew on a campus today. It is very difficult for people who are a yarmulke uh, to walk on a campus today without being uh, harassed. Um, there are professors who uh, who use their their classroom uh, to traffic in in their opinions, not in scholarship, but in their opinions. Um, that that's that's troublesome, and when I have to get a call uh, from from uh, a, a dean or from a, from the director of Hillel at UCLA who says that the students are afraid to go to class last Friday because they are afraid that they're going to be uh, they're going to be uh, that their security was in jeopardy. Uh, can you help? You know, how do we? You know, so that's that's not the America I grew up in, and, uh, and you'll get to the to yeah. the other stuff. I, I'll I'll shut up here. Brett, you can comment on any of that, but I'd especially like you to talk about the reaction on university campuses. At Harvard, for example, uh, its former president, Larry Summers, said he was sickened by the school's lack of response to a letter from 30 student groups blaming Israel for the Hamas attacks. The letter has since been removed, and the new Harvard president issued another statement calling out Hamas for what she called its abhorrent attack. But we've seen similar episodes on other campuses. What explains this, and how should universities react? How should they deal with the kind of problems Zev was talking about? Well, uh, universities have two options. I think they can either have a stance of principled neutrality, in which they simply do not comment on um, matters of political interest. Uh, the University of Chicago, where I was a student, has that takes takes that view, and I actually think it's a consistent and principled stand. But most universities in the last few years have commented abundantly on issues of social concern. After George Floyd's murder, a lot of commentary. You can see Ukrainian flags uh, flying from uh, administrative buildings, I think at Harvard as well. And what you saw here was uh, a different uh, standard uh, being uh, being applied when the uh, outrage of October 7th uh, uh, occurred. Um, Look, I think we have to acknowledge a few things. There's anti-Semitism on the right, 
and there is a lot of anti-Semitism on the left. I agree with Zev. It simply travel, uh, travels under a slightly different name. The anti-Semites on the right do us, in a sense, the favor of being quite open about using the word Jew. But the anti-Semitism on the left, in many ways indistinguishable uh, uh, from it, hides behind the word Zionist. Anti-Semitism is a, is a, is a wide-ranging hatred that takes more than just a racialist form. It's a religious hatred, it's an ethnic hatred, and it is a political hatred. And anti-Zionism is simply the political form of anti, uh, anti-Semitism. It makes exactly the same claims about the Jews that traditional anti-Semites do, and the claim is that Jews are imposters and swindlers. Europeans used to say that the Jews are actually from the Middle East, and they're here to swindle your money, and now they say that the Jews are actually from Europe, and they're here to swindle Palestinian land. But essentially, they're, they're identical. And it's important, it's important not only uh, to call out the anti-Semitism that we saw at Charlottesville, but to call out the anti-Semitism that we saw, that I witnessed in Times Square just a few days ago. The day after the, day after the, the attacks of October 7th, I was in Times Square in New York watching a group that professed to be a left-wing group looking euphoric and cheering at the event that took place at the music festival at the Rave in, uh, in, in Israel, actively cheering it. And if the left can't call that out, if the left can't call that out, if honorable liberals can't call that out, that's a real problem. That's a real problem, just as it is a real problem that on the right, so much of the right had a hard time calling out Charlottesville for what it is. Let's police our own sides in this, uh, in this battle. Now, just briefly, I think there's a larger point, which is that there's an anti-Semitism that we see and there's an anti-Semitism that we sense. And the anti-Semitism that we sense is the proverbial iceberg that's under the water. It hasn't quite manifested itself. It's not captured by statistics uh, that the ADL puts out. But the anti-Semitism that we sense, I think, travels often under ideas and concepts that may not be overtly anti-Semitic, but are what I call adjacent to anti-Semitism. And in some ways, they're that much more dangerous because people engage in, in, in modes of thinking that they don't think lead to anti-Semitism, but they do. And in this day and age, one of those modes of thinking that worries me the most is conspiracy theories. Because what is anti-Semitism? It is a conspiracy theory about the Jews. So when you live in a country in which conspiracy theories abound the way they do here, whether it's about Barack Obama's, uh, where, where President Obama was born, or the results uh, of, of the 2020 elections, or Bill Gates having implanted all of you with a chip so he can monetize your movements with the COVID vaccine. I'm mentioning these as preposterous conspiracy theories, not things I believe, right? But in a country that will believe anything about anything, that country will ultimately believe anything and the worst things about the Jews. And that's, I think, where, where we are going. I think that explains not just what's happening on campuses, but uh, in the culture at large. So, and Bob, if I could just yeah, add one thought uh, to piggyback on what Brett just said. Why is it important for a president of a university or a mayor or a, a governor uh, to make a statement about these things? It's not, it's not like we need a, you know, the Jewish community, the black community, the Latino community. They don't need the endorsement. Uh, 
in a vacuum. But what's happened in our country in the last six or seven years, uh, and I lay it on on uh, the last president, is that the what passes for acceptable political discourse in this country, the, the, the floor has been lowered dramatically. And it's it's now possible and more acceptable, socially acceptable, to say things that in 2016 and before for a good decent interval was not was not socially acceptable. One of the things that leaders have to do is to lead. And even when it's uncomfortable, even when you might get a resolution uh, condemning you from from the academic Senate, even if you're even if the Democratic Socialists of America won't endorse you in your next election, whatever the issue is, whatever the the organization is, you have to lead and make it socially unacceptable to traffic in this kind of uh, in, in this kind of language. And that's why you, you, you turn to your your leaders of every institution, school principals who have had a difficulty uh, saying anything about this. Imagine that. Uh, schools where where there are Jews uh, <laughs> who might need some some counseling or some reassurance or something from from their junior high school or high school principal, even handedness. Uh, it, it, I, I I agree. If you're gonna, I, I mean, I don't think you I don't think you can lead and say nothing about anything today in these days. But if if you if you're gonna say something, then you got to make it mean something. And not water it down to the point where it does more harm than good, and that's what the reaction you're seeing in Columbia and Stanford and some of the other universities uh, that that didn't didn't step up. And, to and the I, would, I would add to something Zev said. Um, you know, I, I do not believe that the solution lies in censorship. I am I am a believer in 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 free speech. But uh, a young student here was showing me a video of a of a protest here on 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 this campus from a few days ago. When students are chanting, there is only one solution, okay? That has a resonance. When students say, intifada is the solution, that has a resonance too. I lived in Israel during the years of the second intifada. I saw people get blown up on buses, not at a distance, at firsthand being blown up on buses. Basically, uh, um, prequels to what we, what we saw on, on October 7th. So there is responsibility among the adults at this institution and so many other institutions where that is happening to explain to students what those terms mean. What does intifada mean or what did it mean in, in, in 2002, 2003, as innocent people were being blown up in cafes and buses? And what does it mean to say there is only one solution? Because the word solution, when it's applied to Jews, has a has 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 frightening echoes, and so to those of you who are faculty in this room, use that as President Obama used to say as a teaching opportunity, because I don't think students really know what intifada is. They might not necessarily know what the term one solution suggests. Use that as your as your chance not to censor but to teach. But you mentioned earlier the University of Chicago and its position of neutrality. Yeah. What does it do about something like the boycott disinvestment movement, some of whose adherents uh, say they just want to pressure Israel to change, but others who say that Israel has no right to exist at all? So, the, 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 look, I mean, I, you can read the Calvin report from back in 68. The university does not enter into uh, uh, make political statements. They do not endorse resolutions of any kind. That often has led to difficulties for the university in the 1950s during an anti-communist era. The university was, was willing to host 
the president of the Communist Party USA, I, I forgot uh, uh, who it was at the time, it caused a huge controversy. And at the same time, in the 1980s, they didn't, again, on a principled basis, sign up to the anti-apartheid uh, efforts. That wasn't to say that presidents and administrators and faculty members didn't have strong feelings. It just wasn't, as Chicago saw it, its role institutionally. That's, I think, an honorable model. However, if as an institution you choose to endorse certain kinds of, of ideas and causes, then I think you've kind of crossed a Rubicon. And what you saw with university presidents who were outspoken when it came to something like George Floyd or the war of Ukraine, and then had to be dragged kicking and screaming to make a halfway decent statement about the, the, the mass murder uh, in, in Israel, is you, you learn something about their, their, their politics and you learn something about their, their values. And if I were uh, on the board, a trustee, either at Harvard or Penn, I would be thinking very hard about who I choose to represent the university as a president or, as, or an administrator. You have any reaction to that? No. I, you think you think it's a perfectly principled position to say we are never going to take a stand on these issues. It wouldn't be my choice, okay? Uh, but let me. Uh, I'll, I'll ask you a different kind of question: Is it better to have somebody say absolutely nothing, or say something that actually does more harm than good? Uh, I'd prefer the Chicago approach uh, to uh, to something that is uh, profoundly insulting and hurtful. At a time when a community, whatever the community is, for, forget about uh, the October seventh of any. Uh, George Floyd is a perfect example. Uh, you know, the, the, I don't know what happened here. I'm sure it was not different, any different than it was at UCLA. Uh, the whole, the whole campus community, from top to bottom, uh, it, it embraced the the, uh, the African American community. Not not just making statements about what what had happened, but embraced the community that was that was hurt and was suffer, was 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 hurting in a very in a very profound way. At the Luskin School, we had a, a town hall meeting with our students on Zoom. Uh, because of the COVID was was ravaging us at the time, and and uh, you know, so I I think you've got to you know you you you've, you've got to have you got you can't be tone deaf about what's going on in your own organization. And I think there's been and there's a bit of fear. I get it. Uh, there's a bit of you know if I say this, then I'm going to get pushed by the other side to say something else. Well, when when the Israelis do something uh and they've done some things not nothing like this but when they've done things that have that, that have resulted in the deaths of people uh even people in our community myself included have have spoken out on it uh, you got to be consistent but uh but on October 7th and October 8th and October 9th uh the, 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 there was no you know there, there was no other hand there's that great scene in Fiddler on the Roof when Tevye's uh youngest daughter is going to marry a non-Jew, and Tevye is struggling. He's talking to God, and he says, "On the one hand, she's my daughter. On the other hand, you know, she's uh, abandoning her religion. But on the other hand, she's been the light of my life. On the other hand, and then at one point, he says, there is no other hand.' And at some point, uh, there is no other hand. And in between, uh, in the first week of this uh, of this catastrophe, there was no other hand. What's the debate? For God's sake, what's the debate? Talk about echoes." Uh, the scene. Uh, I don't. I, I don't want to spend the whole time talking about what happened then. But, but it, it, it was. There, there's something wrong when, when leaders will not, you know, seize the moment and understand 
maybe they need a little political training, right? So I'm, I'm going to come off campus for sure. a minute and go back to something Zev said and ask your reaction and then ask you about something you said. What do you say to those who suggest or imply, and you spent a lot of time in Israel, obviously, that it's somehow anti-Semitic to disagree with an Israeli government? Just read the Israeli press. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, two Jews, three opinions, that's false. It's two Jews, 300 opinions. Uh, this is a country that is constantly criticizing its leaders, uh, aspects of its policy, thinking deeply about the dilemmas it uh, it faces. And uh, I think one of the um, consistently... Uh, vacuous dodges that I often hear um, from people who call themselves anti-Zionists is to say, well, there's nothing wrong with criticizing the Israeli government. Of course not. Of course there's nothing wrong with either Israelis criticizing their government or us criticizing their government. That's the essence of what a democracy and a liberal society has to be. But you put this correctly, Zev, which is there is a fundamental difference between saying, uh, the settlements are wrong. Netanyahu's a, 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 an SOB. Uh, you know, he should belong in jail. All of these things, normal political discourse and saying this state should not exist. Because I cannot think, with the exception of Vladimir Putin, of another person who says about another state, that state should not exist. Has anyone ever decided that, I don't know, Sri Lanka should not exist, Mexico should not exist, France shouldn't exist? Um, you know, Belgium. Well, I mean, some Belgians think it shouldn't exist, but that's another story, <laughs> right? There is only one state that is 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 singled out in a semi-respectable way for not just criticism of its actions, but criticism of its existence. And I would argue that that is yet further evidence that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. If you're just against national states, well, okay, but that's a principled position. But if you're going to tell me that the only state whose existence you 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 uh, oppose is Israel, you're taking you're you're taking an anti anti-Semitic view, and that has to be called out uh, far more clearly than 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 we often do. So you know, by all means, let's criticize the Israeli government. We're doing it all the time, um, but let's draw some sharp distinctions between what is legitimate and illegitimate criticism. You have anything on that? I totally agree. Uh, I mean. In the words of a congressman, I associate myself with the, the remarks of my colleague from from New York. Uh, yeah, and, and there's uh, and by the way, we have to teach some people in, in, within the Jewish community. Sometimes I have to, I kind of play that role a little bit at UCLA at, at the chancellor's request. Uh, people have a right to criticize, to, to say whatever they want, and uh, and they have a right to criticize the Israeli government and not not be called anti-Semitic. Uh, you could have an anti-Semite who's criticizing the Israeli government, but criticizing the Israeli government doesn't make him an anti-Semite. That's, that's uh, you know, and, and, the, and this is where I come to that old line: the way you, the way you you fight hate speech uh, or you know, bad speech or whatever the line is is with more speech. We have it on. Our, we have to be responsible uh, ourselves to uh, to speak up, to be educated, uh, to be informed, and 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 not to. Every time somebody says something that's critical of Israel, to say "oi, oi, gewalt," you know, it, it, and, and uh, it's it's just it's a debate, uh, and nobody debates it. I mean, look at what's been going on in Israel for the last 
eight, nine months. Uh, I mean, we could learn something from from that democracy. Uh, we didn't have those kinds of demonstrations here when uh, between 1970, uh, 2017 and 2021. We had one in the first couple of days, but that was it. So anyway, I, I do not disagree with, uh, so, with that. Uh, having done two campaigns in Israel, national campaigns, I can tell you even when you get 10 people in the room who are all enlisted in the same cause, you're absolutely right. There might not be 300 opinions. There might be 500 yeah. opinions about what ad to run tomorrow, what to do about this. And it is a society, having spent a lot of time there, where you look at the papers every day, or the translations of the papers in my case, and there's a lot of criticism from directed at every side of, 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 of the political spectrum. But I want to I do a couple of follow-ups uh, to things that have already been said. You talked about conspiracy theories. Uh, Anti-Semitism, as I said earlier, seems to be the most ancient and ineradicable form of a conspiracy theory. Why? What are the elements that for centuries have fueled this fire? Uh, Look, uh, this is a a large uh, subject. Um, uh, There is... uh, Let me make two two basic points. Um, Number one... Uh, opposition to Jews is in, and I say this, uh, please take it the way I mean it, is in some ways a rational position. And what I mean by that is that Jews have stood for a set of radical ideas for a long time. One God, and one God who judges every other God and has one set of ethical standards. That is going to cause um, opposition among either polytheistic systems or people who don't feel that a universal, they they feel judged by a universal morality. Freedom-seeking. What is the quintessential Jewish story? It's Moses leading his people away from oppression and towards a free society. So opposition to tyranny is fundamental to Jewish uh, um, identity. A concept of peoplehood that is between the state or the or the or the regime and and people, a kind of an inter- intermediary zone of identity. Jewish American, African American, uh, uh, Chinese American. This is also a Jewish idea. Argument for the sake of heaven. Which is a is a is a is a Jewish term. The idea that our religious tradition is invites dissent, invites disagreement. Again, not necessarily a popular view. Most systems, most religious systems, are like this is the orthodoxy. This is what you do. And the final thing: universal education. After after the uh, the end of the of the of of ancient Israel, how did you become a Jew? You learned to read. It's an astounding thing. Think about what the world was 500 years ago when literacy was 1%, 2% of the population. Among Jews, you had universal literacy, or at least universal male literacy and a lot of female literacy. So it's not, in a sense, surprising that uh, a people who have these radical ideas that now we consider uh, the essence of democratic ideas, these radical ideas would engender this kind of hatred. I think that has to be taken into account in understanding anti-Semitism. But at some point, this this form of opposition was operationalized as a series of conspiracy theories. So what's a conspiracy theory? Well, 
who killed Christ, not the Romans who actually crucified him. There was a Jewish conspiracy to kill Christ. That's, that's, that's one conspiracy theory. A, a, a future conspiracy theory, Jews were, as I mentioned earlier, imposters and swindlers trying to swindle Europeans out of their patrimony. Third conspiracy theory, uh, anti-Zionism, Jews are trying to swindle Palestinians out of their land. It has occurred and reoccurred throughout history. And what you will find is that in any anti-Semite, whatever the nature of his anti-Semitism, whether it's the right-wing anti-Semitism of Charlottesville or the left-wing anti-Semitism of some of the pro-Hamas demonstrations uh, here, it always travels alongside totalitarian ideologies. Anti-Semitism is also an ideology against freedom. So one of the reasons that non-Jews have to be active in combating anti-Semitism is because anti-Semitism is the proverbial canary in the coal mine. When Jews are being threatened, it's democracy that's being threatened. When Jews are being threatened, it's liberal ideas that are being threatened. That's a kind of... uh, Three-minute history, I hope, of, uh, of uh, Pretty damn good. what I'm talking uh, about. But my follow-up for you is, is comes more to the present day because you referred to it several times. Uh, for a number of decades after the 60s and 70s, it was increasingly beyond the pale to promote anti-Semitic ideas. Uh, we had the Nazi march in Skokie, yes, but it was almost universally scorned. Uh, still... In my view, at least, anti-Semitism was always there, hidden under a rock. Uh, You mentioned the former president. Is he the only reason that the demon has been released so that Twitter and X, I guess I'm supposed to call it, is rife with Holocaust denial, a torch-carrying mob chants, as you said, the Jews will not replace us. You have anti-Semitic tropes like attacks on George Soros, conspiracy theories about Jews controlling the media, banking, and politics, all now proliferating across social media. It's like a century after Henry Ford's distributing the protocols of the elders of Zion all across America. Don't Uh, forget space lasers. We also have space lasers. (laughs) Space lasers. Uh, is Is it just Trump that licensed this, or is it something that's more widespread, deeper? and Yeah, look, it's not just just this guy or that guy. Uh, but I don't think you can underestimate, at least in the political discourse, um, he, he unleashed some real stuff. And I think they, there's a lot of, a lot of bigotry generally and anti-Semitism specifically that have been hiding under a rock. And one of the things that I alluded to before is it, it was, it was not socially acceptable for, uh, for most people who, who, uh, uh, had that kind of bigotry in, in, in their heart, uh, to articulate it openly. It was just, it was just not, so, it was not acceptable. It was the kind of thing that wasn't acceptable. Uh, it, it's become more acceptable that the president of the United States can talk like this. And he, he made, made and continues to make, uh, many offensive remarks, not just about Jews, but about a, a lot of people and about a lot of things. Uh, I, I don't think there's any doubt that it unleashed it. Now, the, the other side of this is that I think, and I can speak to this personally, uh, in my lifetime, I haven't had to worry about in Los Angeles, California, up until recently, I haven't had to worry about uh, being being attacked because I'm a Jew. Uh, I had life, I, I have had death threats in, in, in my life. Um, uh, most of them were not serious. Um, probably a dozen of them in my lifetime. One, one the most serious one, oddly enough, was when I was 
teaching at UCLA, and it came as a result of something I said on uh, on Channel 9, which had nothing to do with Jews. It had to do with law enforcement or something, and this guy sent a threatening letter. And uh, and it was a total investigation about it. So, But the the... The, the the point is that uh, we've I've I'll speak for myself I've taken it for granted that this was a safe place America's a safe place democracy all the institutions of democracy the Constitution is going to protect us um, and I think uh, I, I I think the, in the last few years uh, you know now I put on my historian's hat uh, that was my my degree I I. I do believe that any society at any time with the right recipe uh, can devolve uh, into the same way that Germany did. I, I don't. I, I don't question that for. I, I don't question that for a second. Everybody is is capable of of uh, of, of becoming profoundly inhumane. Yeah, you know, just to that point, yeah. just briefly, um, cast your mind back 101 years to Germany. Uh, the most um, important man in Germany was Walter Rattenauer. The greatest scientist in Germany was Albert Einstein. The greatest doctor in Germany was Otto von Meyerhoff. And the greatest philosopher in Germany was Edmund Husserl, 1922. All Jews. A third of German Nobel Prize winners were Jewish. That's 11 years before Hitler came to power. So it's worth thinking that in Jewish history, there is this pattern in which our zenith is also our precipice. You look to today and the Senate Majority Leader, the Secretary of State, Treasury, Homeland Security, and the Chief of Staff to the President, all Jewish. And so on the one hand, if you just look at it, you think what, what an amazing rise uh, for American Jews in terms of positions of political influence and power. But it's worth keeping that historical echo in mind that we've seen this uh, before, not just in Germany, Russia, Spain, other other societies where Jews have had good runs that ended in tragedy. This so, is do why, you think it's... If I could just... One, one last comment on this, Bob. Uh, this is why political leaders, religious leaders academic leaders, corporate leaders need to speak out and speak out loudly when these things start to raise their their ugly head. I just want to ask, Brett, do you think it's fair to say that it was President Trump that triggered this? Or are there other underlying forces? No, this has been going on for a long time. I think he was more symptom than cause. Uh, I mean, symptoms can then accelerate uh, and worsen uh, a problem. In some ways, this began in 1975 with the Zionism is, is racism resolution and a certain strain on, on, on the left that then took up the banner of being militantly anti-Israel, not just opposed to Israeli policies, but opposed to Israel's existence. Then it came back roaring on, on, on the right. And in that sense, I think Trump was a real accelerant. Uh, in that, and and you, just, you just put it so well, Zev, he just lowered the floor. Uh, what, what used to be impermissible suddenly became... Uh, permissible. The the dog whistles of anti-Semitism that used to be called out no longer got called out. In fact, they were celebrated by uh, by members of Congress and the and the most extreme and radical and fringe elements of the Republican Party became the center of the Republican Party. Uh, so when a historian tells the story of 21st century anti uh, anti-Semitism, 
I think the Trump years will play will be a large chapter in it, but they won't be the whole book. Yeah, I would I would call him a catalyst uh, as much as an accelerant and a catalyst. He he catalyzed this whole so, this whole thing. We hear about violence all the time in the news, yet we rarely hear stories about peace. There are so many people who are working hard to promote solutions to violence, toxic polarization, and authoritarianism, often at great personal risk. We never hear about these stories, but at what cost? On Making Peace Visible, we speak with journalists, storytellers, and peace builders who are on the front lines of both peace and conflict. You can find Making Peace Visible wherever you listen to podcasts. What can we do? You say speak out, but don't we have to do more than that to contain the new outbreaks of anti-Semitism abroad and here in America, where I was stunned to discover that Jews, who account for just 2.4% of the population, in 2022 were victims of 55% of the hate crimes in this country. Is it just a question of uh, standing up. No, it's not just wrong. about. It's not just about speaking out. It's about the curriculums in our uh, curricula in our schools. I mean, that's been a big debate in, in California in the last couple of years. You know, I don't want to get it, get into the details because I really don't know all the details. I've kind of followed it you know, from a thirty thousand foot view. But there, you know, how how you teach things, uh, whether you teach things. When you talk about the Israel Palestine situation, also talk about if you're going to talk about that, talk about it. Jewish history. If you're going to have a, you know, in a public school, I'm not sure what how much you can you can teach. But the, the one of the things is, is ignorance. Uh, there, there's a lot of ignorance in our society. I remember a, when I, when I was a student at UCLA, there was a, a, a young woman who, who was one of my colleagues in the class. She came from Oyster Bay, New York, and uh, I won't mention her name, but I remember her name because this story is is seared in my psyche and she was looking at my really close looking at my head and i said what are you doing and she says well i i was just looking to see if there's any evidence of of horns coming out of your head because i was raised believing that jews had horns this is not this is not a a, a joke this was a serious uh, young woman who came from that part of long island and you know so I call, I don't know if this is an appropriate term, there there are really virulent anti-Semites and there are cultural anti-Semites, people who have been raised and don't know any better. Um, Walter Alston couldn't stand Sandy Koufax. Walter Alston was the was the manager of the Dodgers. I know there are young people here. Who he kind of needed him. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and uh, when... when and, and, when Koufax wouldn't pitch, refused to pitch on Yom Kippur on the, in the nineteen sixty five World Series, he pitched Drysdale instead, and Drysdale gave up six runs or something in the first inning. And when Walt Alston came out to the mound to take him out, he says, "I bet you you wish I was Jewish." It's it's, it's a uh, uh, he was a cultural. That's how he was raised in rural Ohio, uh, and it, it's a who knows where it came from. He wasn't born with it. I don't believe that people are born with with prejudice or hate. But it, it's in the community. So education, and, and let, let's leave the Middle East out of it for a second, but just in a city, in, in a state as diverse as California, uh, it's important for all of us to understand who the people are who live next door or, or live in our community and, and, and make up our community. First of all, it's fascinating. It's interesting. 
Uh, I've always found that remarkably, we have 150 languages, uh, more than that spoken in Los Angeles. We have people from at least 100 different countries, maybe more who live in Los Angeles, and they all have their little communities uh, in, in commercial centers and foods and culture and it's one of the reasons I've been such a passionate supporter of the arts, uh, because the arts is kind of a language that everybody understands. Music, dance, song, even if you don't understand the words. I mean, you get in a, in a diverse, in a city that's diverse, in a society that's diverse, bringing people together so that they can look at my head or I can look at your head and see if you have, if you have horns. When David Rue, Korean-American, uh, uh, ran for the city council in one of the whitest districts in Los Angeles, Sherman Oaks, Las Feliz, Studio City. Uh, he came to me and he asked me, what should I do? And I, I said, well, I said, you should walk every door in Sherman Oaks. It's 35% of the voters of the district and let them see you. Let them see that you can speak English, that you can string a sentence together, that you don't have horns. And, uh, and he won that race largely because he won Sherman Oaks. And uh, anyway, you know, when you can't demonize people who you know, who you work with, who you socialize with. It's much harder to demonize them. You can demonize somebody uh, when you don't know them, and then somebody else frames that for you. And I think that's part of the problem. We are only, what, 2% of the population? Uh, there are 2.4%. 2.4% of the population. There are a lot of places in America they've never seen a Jew or not knowingly seen a Jew. Brad, I'm going to give you the last word, then turn to the audience. Look, uh, I think ultimately anti-Semitism is less a problem for the Jews as it is for non-Jews. I urge non-Jews to educate themselves, but I think we're not going to deal with this well unless we inculcate in every young Jew a sense of pride in being Jewish. And um, I think the Jewish American community could actually take lessons from the African American community and other communities about what it means to feel a deep sense of pride in who we are, our traditions, what we've contributed to this and so many uh, other societies. And part of that pride comes from knowledge of what our traditions um, are. What, what does it really mean to be uh, Jewish? I don't think uh, a lot of young Jews who, who I, I, I meet, I'm, I don't know how many of the younger students here are Jewish, don't, don't really know all that much about it. But to those of you who are young Jews, you have been given, just by the kind of luck you have been given access to this incredible inheritance that stretches back 3,000 years. That means that you as a Jew survive when the Mesopotamians and the Byzantines and the Romans and the Inquisitors and so many other civilizations have washed away. And the reason I think that Judaism and Jewishness has survived is because we do have a set of distinctive and remarkable values that are worth preserving, honoring, understanding, and passing on. And I think that if we, if we think about it not as a matter of trying to you know, bring lots of people to a Holocaust museum to see our pain, but just understand for ourselves what it is, what, what is this thing that we have and why it creates something quite special and unique and why it contributes despite our tiny numbers, so much to human flourishing, we can at least 
create a hard core that knows how to resist anti-Semitism when, from time to time, it rears its ugly head. We are not going to defeat anti-Semitism if all of our identity as Jews is having to face anti-Semitism. We will only defeat anti-Semitism if we can look on our own inner resources and say, I'm a Jew, and that's terrific. And in fact, I couldn't be luckier, and I want to hold on to it with all of my heart. And if we do that, I think that provides a better template than kind of saying, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble now. This has been terrific. We could go on and on. I want to give the audience a chance to ask some questions. Yes, sir. Thank you. I just want to tell you, Zev, I I think your comments are right on uh, about ignorance. It's a lack of education. It's fear. Not only is it fear of the Jewish people, but the Jewish people are terrified. 2.4% of the population, and you want them to stand up and run in front of those protesters that you have right here on the campus. I don't think that's going to happen. The other thing that I agree with you on, Zev, is you can't be silent. You can't take the middle ground. You've got to stand up. There's a difference between good and evil. I'll leave it to that. Someone else have a question? Thank you very much for this. This was really informative. I'm on the advisory committee for the Center for the Political Future, and and I'm also on the board of the Half Century Trojans because I'm that old. And um, (laughs) I'm not Jewish, but um, I came tonight because I was devastated by the attack on Israel by Hamas. And they seem to be so motivated by hate. And so my question for you is, Do you know of any strategies or programs anywhere in the world that are actually addressing hate and informing people and getting the hate to dissipate? Well, we're trying to do a little bit of that here as much as we can. You're doing a great job. Look, um, that's a large question, but since you, you asked about Hamas, this is work that has to, in my view, occur in the Muslim community, because Hamas is uh, a fundamentalist, theocratic, totalitarian organization whose founding charter called on all of its members to go and kill Jews, invoking a Quranic uh, injunction. And I I don't think my columns in the New York Times are going to persuade anyone in Gaza or or the West Bank that that's, that's, that's a bad road. But you do see people like my friend, uh, the Muslim chaplain at uh, Duke University, uh, Abdullah Antepli, who calls himself a recovering anti-Semite. He grew up marinating in uh, Islamist anti-Semitism and then changed. And he is an extraordinarily powerful and authentic and knowledgeable spokesman for fighting this. You see in moderate and modernizing Arab regimes like the Emirates, uh, Oman, other places, Muslim leaders who are turning the page on this kind of radical fundamentalist extremism, not, not only because it's hateful, but because it's a dead end for Muslim societies. Nobody wants to, find, to end up as the Taliban or, or, or ISIS or other, uh, other groups. And by the way, it's a dead end for the Palestinians, too. Because no Palestinian state is going to come into existence if there's a whisper of a chance that Hamas could rule over it. It would be insane for an Israeli leader to allow that to happen, and it would be devastating for Palestinians. 
But finally, I think there's a role here also on campus. You know, you hear chants of people saying free Palestine. Great. How about freedom for Palestinians? Because free Palestine under Hamas means no women's rights, no LGBTQ rights, no democracy, uh, the entire society given over to militancy and building rockets instead of schools uh, and tunnels instead of hospital clinics. So it behooves people on university campuses to say the term free Palestine at the moment is a misnomer unless you turn Palest- what, what Hamas is trying to make Palestinian identity into something fundamentally different. There is no reason a Palestinian state can't be a, a, a force for good in, in the world as a sovereign entity, right? But at the moment, under, under these characters, uh, it, it, it's devastating not only to Israelis, it's devastating to honorable and honest and good Palestinian aspirations to live in a genuinely free society where people can express themselves beyond simply the matter of an identity defined by, by theocrats. The UCLA... Uh, under the UCLA, under the leadership of uh, Professor David Myers, who happens to be the Jewish history professor uh, at, at UCLA, is putting together a, either a center or an institute. I, I never understood. I, I understand the difference, but I don't know which was which. But they're creating a center on uh, on hate and researching hate of all of all types. Uh, there's a guy whose name I don't remember uh, at Cal State Fullerton who's done some work on. On hate, I'm sure there's some up 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 and down the state, uh, some academic kind of scholarship and in, in, in delving into what you know what's behind hate. This is this is a university type of initiative. Uh, how that translates out into the real world, out into the streets, is another story. And that's what Brett was was alluding to. And uh, but there there's a lot of hate. Uh, and by the way, most people, I, I think I'm obligated to say this because we've only been talking about the bad side of the equation. Most people are not hateful. It's been my experience. Most people are not hateful. I don't even think most people have, uh, I don't think most people are anti-Semites. I, I do I do believe that, uh, you know, I have an old axiom that I learned by, by doing in, in politics. If you treat people with respect, they will reciprocate. If you treat people with contempt, they'll reciprocate that way too. And I think mutual respect and mutual understanding, which has to start with ourselves, reaching out to people who don't look like us, who aren't of our religion or our background or our national origin, whatever, that's kind of an important ingredient to all of this. But we've had hate for as long as... as uh, Human beings have been on Earth. As long as there's been, there's been anybody, any, any human being on Earth. And I think it would be very uh, naive to think that we're going to eradicate it but we can we can deal with it we can we can manage it uh we can we we, we can uh, by our actions uh try to prevent it from spinning out of control i'm very concerned right now that the whole damn world is spinning out of control yeah. uh and i i think it's that view is shared by by a lot of people and i think that's part of why we've seen an increase in hate generally i mean covid think about what's happened in this country I don't want to repeat the Trump thing, but Trump was a destabilizing force politically. COVID, the rules of the game, the assumptions that we have made about our lives have kind of been turned upside down. I do a survey every year at UCLA, a quality, a countywide survey, and it is very transparently clear, which is a redundancy. I need to be careful on a campus not to be redundant, that 
that there is a high level of anxiety among people, especially younger people between the ages of 18 and 39. They are not happy campers. And, uh, you know, I leave that to you to... We have time for two more quick questions. Thank you. Um, I'm an alum. My husband's an alum. My daughter's an alum. I've got a lot of alums. When my daughter was here during uh, one of the wars, there was a tremendous uptick in anti-Semitism. My other daughter was at UC Berkeley. She suffered the same fate. My question is, when George Floyd was grotesquely murdered by a rogue, evil, dumb cop, everyone spoke out. They jumped to speak, to, to, to show compassion and to show support. What would happen if that had happened and on all these campuses there were white supremacists, white nationalists marching for police brutality and for killing black people? What would happen? There would be an outrage, a, 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 complete, a complete, I don't know, explosion. And yet it's allowed to scream and march one campus to another, all over, from river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That's asking for genocide of the Jewish people. The same for intifada, intifada. The solution is the final solution. So why is this tolerated on this campus, at UC Berkeley, at Hamas Harvard? Why is this being tolerated? I think you've answered your own question. And I think it actually goes to, to, to in a profound way, goes to the heart of the problem, um, which is that Jews who have, I think, historically shown so much solidarity with the pain of other minoritized people have not had the benefit of reciprocity. On the contrary, I think it's worth asking and demanding that our community be embraced in the same way, because we haven't been. I mean, all those statements from the president of Harvard and so on, they had to be basically pulled out with a pair of pliers only when well-to-do uh, trustees uh, and former former presidents um, uh, made, you know, publicly, uh, publicly humiliated them. I suspect just listening to you that you are voicing something I've been hearing almost every day since October 7th. I feel it myself. I feel we're alone. I feel we're alone. And that's why I took so much comfort in listening to President Biden speak. And there have been other good statements. But at the level of these communities, these spaces that we have been such an integral part of, especially academic uh, spaces, we are being treated to a totally different standard. Somehow when Jews are murdered, uh, or excuse me, when, when one group is murdered, it's outrageous. When Jews, it's murdered, it's controversial. And that has to change. And Zev or Bob made this point, I think, decisively. It is about leadership. It is about leadership. It is about the tone that is set by the presidents, the trustee, administrators, deans, and, and so on. That leadership, in too many cases, has been totally absent. And I think this is a moment in which universities really need to think very hard about the extent to which they have a certain kind of anti-Semitism problem. It's not that they are anti-Semitic. It's that they are so much more willing to turn a blind eye to anti-Semitism than they are to other forms of, of hatred and bigotry. At the center, we're clearly not willing to turn a blind eye toward anti-Semitism. And in fact, what we've done today, I think, has been a great beginning to what are going to be a series of conversations 
about this problem. Last question. Well, my question is about being heard. I'm consider myself part of a democratic left in terms of the groups that I align myself with and listen to. And I've, I don't think, I think our society would sometimes we focus just on the polarizing voices and we don't necessarily listen to the voices that have condemned voices on the left and on the right that have condemned the events of uh, October 7th. At UCLA, for example, the chancellor went to the Shabbat services at uh, UCLA Hillel to express his horror. I don't know. When we talk about the reactions of chancellors of major universities, I don't know how many people heard about the reaction of the UCLA chancellor, a public institution, and what he did in in reaction to that. There was a, a vigil at UCLA in front of Royce Hall last Wednesday night. A totally peaceful visual with hundreds of students and Israeli flags and candles. It went off without. So my question is, when there are voices, voices in the Muslim Muslim community that are reaching out to Jews, how do we make sure that those voices are heard as well and not just drowned out that by the voices that the public and the media focus on, the loudest and most hateful voices? The media focuses on them because you get more clicks. Yep. You get more eyeballs. There's a kind of, and maybe Brad will correct me because he's in the media, but I think there is a tendency toward gravitate, to gravitate toward the negative and the sensational. And I, I, I take your point, but only up to a point. For all the voices that we heard that were, were, were supportive, I think it's simply undeniable, and this, this uh, lady here I think uh, made the point well, I mean, at a vigil for the for the uh, for the victims of the greatest killing of Jews in in seventy eight years, they were heckled by pro Palestinian protesters. The president of Harvard University is almost by definition, sorry, USC, the most important academic figure in America. It took days for her to speak, days for her to speak. It's shameful. It's shameful, right? And so. It's quite natural that even though we do hear voices and they can be courageous voices, I, I have to say, I, I have a lot of Muslim friends whom I have acquired over the years of reporting from Pakistan to, to, to Morocco. I heard from two. I'm just telling you the truth. I heard from two. I love them. I would do anything for them, but I heard from two, right? So we have to take a kind of a realistic picture of, of where we are. I mean, of course, we don't want to revel in negativity, right, or obsess about it, but we can't just sort of say, well, everything is kind of okay. Things are not okay. And this has been building for decades. And October 7th wasn't simply a horrifying day for Israelis, but I think it was a, a day of a, of a giant cold shower that was poured on American Jews. And I don't want to pretend that I didn't experience that shower because when I went to visit that protest in Times Square, right, they weren't protesting for Palestine. They were euphoric at the murder of Jews. It was as if I remember when Argentina won the World Cup and there were pictures from Buenos Aires, the same state of, of, of emotional ecstasy on the, on the face of the Argentines for, 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 for winning was this, was, 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 was what I saw on those faces. And we have lived through this movie before. We know how it ends. And so I'm going to do my best to call out what I saw. And it was in New York. It was on college campuses. In Sydney, they were chanting, gas the Jews. So the Jewish people, to the extent that we have survived, it's because we have had a 
extrasensory sense of bad things coming our way. In 1933, my grandmother and great-grandmother were living in Berlin. There was an election. You know what my great-grandmother did? She got out. Unfortunately, she went to Italy, so my mother was born in hiding. But what has kept the Jews alive through the ages is a, is a sense of danger. And we have to activate that sense of danger now while we can, while we have resources, while we have allies, while we have a voice. Because as I said, 1922, Albert Einstein, the greatest German, 1933, Hitler elected as, as, as chancellor. The distance in, in time and space could be terrifyingly short. We have almost no time. I'll give, give me 30 seconds. I, you got it. And, and I, I really don't even want to do that because the eloquence of Brett, last comment, but about how long it took for people to speak up. And I say this objectively with no, mal, with, with no rancor. Do you realize that this morning, October 19th, was the first time the Los Angeles Times editorialized on this issue, on, on the uh, Gaza issue? Not one editorial. They had a lot of op-eds, but they did not, they chose not to editorialize until this morning. So it wasn't a bad editorial this morning, but what took them so long? As I said, what an extraordinary first discussion we've had and what I hope will be a series that contributes to dealing with some of the problems you were talking about and you were talking about. I want to thank Brett and Zeb. Thank everyone in our audience. This event will be available on our YouTube channel and our Bully Pulpit podcast. And join us on Zoom on October 24th for our next program with the Honorable Pete Buttigieg. Hmm. And to all of you, have a great rest of the week. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future. That's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.